happy to be here with you guys and excited that the attendance has recovered from last year when I preached. We're looking, we're looking good today. So uh, my wife, uh, Cherry, and I were uh, sent out from North County in 2004. And I really want to, want to say thanks to you guys for uh, your love and your prayer and your support for every year since then. Uh, thanks for your generosity and your prayer and for believing in us. With your partnership, we have trained and equipped 60 uh, trainers who work in all different parts of India, and they train over a 1,000 pastors in uh, 17 out of the 28 states in India. And uh, together, we saw 41,000 people give their hearts to Jesus, and that's just what's happening in India through the LGN. So awesome. Yeah, but then recently... God has really blown our minds by opening up new avenues and new doors for us. We've had networks that have come to us and say, you guys are doing something right. Our pastors need this as well. Please send us trainers. We even had whole denominations coming and asking us to send trainers. So the opportunities to grow are tremendous, and we are excited to be a part of what God's doing. And we also know that we could not do it without the partnership we have here at North County. So thank you guys for being with us. Also, I want to say thanks. You really uh, you blessed our socks off with the year in giving around Christmas. Uh, last year, we sent kind of a wish list of, of, of things, and I think every single thing was sponsored generously. So this is a, a church building that was just kind of a husk in a, in a shell of a single floor. Now the upstairs is, is, is getting finished, and the downstairs is done. That's the whole worship center you're seeing right there, that finished uh, room right there. And that's also going to be um, a training center for one of our regional leaders in the Life-Giving Network, and then his family will live upstairs. Uh, we also had a, a, a medical clinic that uh, we were able to buy all of the equipment for. Uh, so now it's up and running and it's serving dozens of villages. And we've reduced the wait time from three days on a blood test to three hours. And uh, that's the doctor there on the right. He drives 90 minutes each way, uh, yeah, to serve the poor tribals there. And it's super. It's going great. Uh, now, uh, one of our trainers... He used to ride long distances on his bicycle. Here he is getting a motorcycle for the, for the first time. And you can see the sales rep is super enthusiastic as he hands the <laughs> ceremonial key over. Uh, and, uh, but I'm telling you, the pastor is super enthusiastic. His, his scope and ministry influence has uh, gone up by like a factor of five because he's got wheels now. Uh, and then the last uh, photo there, this is a school slash church that now has air conditioning. It's in Mumbai. And I'm telling you, air conditioning is the greatest thing that America ever exported. Uh, and uh, it's life-changing there. So now the school enrollment is up and people are eager to come to church on Sunday morning because they can breathe a little bit more freely. There's actually uh, two of these wall units, one front, one back, and there's a third one downstairs. So uh, thank you guys uh, for coming through big time on that. It was a really a joy for me to be the middleman for these transactions and, you know, for... Uh, all of these guys, this was like a once-in-a-lifetime miracle for them, uh, for their ministries to grow and expand in ways they never thought that they could afford. So, awesome. Uh, so, to kick off the series today, we're going to talk about courage. I feel that Pastor Kurt's message last week really set the table for us with his emphasis on shining your light, meeting the, the needs, planting seeds, and inviting people to church. So, building on that, we're going to look at how to stand, stand out and speak up for God at work or at school. You know, I think all of us want to have more courage. And as it turns out, courage is not the absence of fear, but it's deciding to move forward despite your fear. And while standing up for your faith for God isn't always easy, the story of Daniel shows us how rewarding it can be. So are there any in this room who secretly always wanted to go to Bible school, but you never got the chance? 
today's your lucky day. We're going to get down and nerdy with some of the background of the book of Daniel. And uh, yeah, it'll be good. And, uh, and then we're going to go verse by verse through chapter 6. Uh, the way we do it in India, I'm going to give you a little taste of that. Uh, and then we're also going to pause on the way to hear about one of our heroes in India who has demonstrated great uh, uh, courage and experienced a miraculous rescue on his own. There were no lions involved in his story, but I think you're going to be amazed nonetheless. So uh, Daniel has been called the most directly applicable book in the Old Testament. Before we get into the text of chapter 6, I just want to to spend a couple minutes helping you to take in the scope of the book, how it was structured, because it's pretty unique in the Bible. It was written in two languages, okay? So the vast majority of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but Daniel has this funny six-chapter section that was written in Aramaic. This was the lingua franca, the common language of the Persian Empire, okay? So, and then the Aramaic portion of Daniel was carefully structured with what we call a chiasm. So a chiasm is a, is a composition technique found in ancient literature that was basically a way of structuring the small sections together into a larger pattern with the repetitions. It was a way of, of doing callbacks, basically. So chapters 2 through 7 here in red, these are the Aramaic portion of the book of Daniel. But, you know, our Bibles are in English, so it's, it's easy to miss that when you're uh, only reading in English. I'm here for you. All right. So, um, so our best guess for why did Daniel do this? Why did he write the book in two different languages? Was that chapters two to seven were basically for broader distribution, like for the whole empire to read and to know about the, the power and the, the grandeur of, of God. And then chapters one and chapters two through eight was more like a family business for the Israelites. This was the, the secret message encoded in Hebrew for, for them. All right. Uh, so uh, chapters two to seven are the A portion of the chiasm, each one featuring a four-part vision that is interpreted to be about four kingdoms. And of course, we know that the fourth kingdom was the everlasting kingdom of God, which Jesus leads. Okay, and then chapters three to six are the B portion of the chiasm, each showing a test of right worship and how God miraculously rescues his faithful worshipers. And then chapters four and five meet in the middle and uh, they are uh, uh, they highlight God's sovereignty over Babylonian kings. First, the infamous Nebuchadnezzar, and then in chapter five, over the last a Babylonian king, Belshazzar. This is the famous story of the writing on the wall, and that actually sets the background for our focus today, which is going to be Daniel chapter 6. So Daniel has been taken into exile as a young man, and he has risen up the ranks of the Babylonian aristocracy, has a long career as a prominent leader in the Babylonian empire. In the very last days of the Babylonian reign, in in chapter 5, he ends up being the only one who can interpret the mysterious writing on the wall, um, which basically says the Persians are coming, the the days of Babylon's reign are over today, uh, and they're going to conquer you. So not all historical not all historical accounts agree on this, but it seems like this was a bloodless coup. Now history is usually written by the victor, so maybe there was more blood than they want to let on. But their uh, clever idea was to divert the Euphrates River um, and then to march the soldiers in, kind of under the wall in that dried up riverbed. Uh, so that's how the writing on the wall was fulfilled that same night. Um, and so like in modern times, this would be like if Iran invaded Iraq. Okay, that's the Persians invading the Babylonians. So, so this transition of power could have gone very badly for Daniel, right? As a high up official of the old re- regime, but God sav- sovereignly helped Daniel to rise on his feet and to take a, a very senior position. I would even say uh, an elevated position with the new Persian empire. 
Uh, so it's important for us to understand that at this point in the book of Daniel, he is an old man. Our best guess, he was 83 years old once we get to chapter 6. So before we jump on to the next slide, you see that little bit of India next to the blue on the right side of the map? Well, just for, for context, here is where I live with my family uh, in India. So we're just writing ourselves into the story of Daniel slightly. There we are, over there. All right, so... Uh, all right, so Babylon's gone, and the Persians are trying to figure out the administrative nitty-gritty of their newly expanded empire. So in chapter 6, verse 1, we read that Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each one. Okay, so there's 120 leaders, all right? And then the king also chose Daniel and two other administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. So if they split them up evenly, then, you know, each of these three big administrators would oversee 40 of the provinces. So it's a little difficult to get a kind of equivalent power structure today. It's bigger than a state governor, but not as big as the president. Maybe Daniel with something like a cabinet minister, um, something like that. And then in verse 3, uh, Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all of the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the whole empire. So he was going to go from a, from a cabinet position, maybe up to the vice president, and the king really wanted to kick back and enjoy life, let someone else deal with the grind of ruling every day, and Daniel was the guy he had picked for the job. So despite the regi- regime change, why did Daniel keep getting promoted? If you're taking notes, that's your first uh, blank you can scribble in. Um, and, and, and the first reason for that is because of his professional competency, it made him stand out. Verse 3 tells us that Daniel soon proved himself to be the most capable of the three administrators and that the king was making plans to place him over the entire empire. So we'll see that this also put a target on Daniel because while he was a career diplomat and bureaucrat, he didn't like to play politics like his rivals did. Uh, and then we'll see the other two reasons why he kept getting promoted shortly. So, so in verse 4, then the administrators and high Officers began searching for some fault in Daniel in the way that he was handling the government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, completely trustworthy. Okay, so this is a bit funny because he wrote that about himself. But I think, you know, as you read the book of Daniel, you'll find that, you know, it's legit. He really, um, he was those things that he says. He wasn't the only one saying that about him. All right. So in verse 5, So they concluded, the only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Maybe his refusal to eat the king's food 70 years ago had created a bit of a reputation for Daniel. And they thought, you know, this is his Achilles heel, is that he's super devout as a Jew. And so we got to find some way to manipulate that uh, before he rises up to total power in the empire and we lose our opportunity. All right, so the other two reasons why he stood out and kept getting promoted were his personal character and his public commitment to God. Character is not about the image you project, but this is about who you really are in the dark. When they dug around, there was no dirt to dig up on Daniel. So his public commitment to God had served him well for decades. He had a reputation as a God-fearing, faithful man. People knew he wouldn't uh, compromise or be corrupted. People knew this because, uh, you know, they knew it so well, they thought, well, maybe his devotion could be used against him. So in verse 6, 
the administrators and high officials went before the king to say, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law to be strictly enforced. This was, of course, a lie, because they weren't all there, nor were they all in agreement. Daniel was somehow missing from this meeting. Um, But Darius seemed to enjoy this kind of shameless adoration, and he didn't seem to notice that his right-hand man wasn't there chiming in with a chorus of praise. So give the orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except for you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it, it cannot be changed as, as an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So without a great deal of thought or uh, wisdom, King Darius signed the law. It's interesting to note that he was so blinded by pride and ego that he couldn't really suss out what was going on here, that this was a carefully crafted attack on Daniel. So in our, our Aramaic Achaiasm, the chapter that corresponds to this is the famous Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, chapter 3, uh, where you know, this, uh, Daniel is not in that chapter, but it's about his three friends that had been taken into captivity along with him as a teenager. So we you know when something incredible like the fiery furnace escape happens to your friends, it's natural to wonder, what would you do had you been confronted with a similar situation? Well, this chapter happens 46 years later, but the parallels are remarkable. This time it's Daniel's turn to face the life or death decision. Will he compromise for a political expediency or will he risk his, his life to do the right thing by God? In verse 10, but when Daniel learned that, that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. He didn't even close the window, right? It's like, it would have been so easy to rationalize. You know, God will understand, right? You know, we have to be wise as serpents, right? Isn't that how it goes? So God sees my heart. You know, he'll hear my prayer even if it's silent. Why don't I just close the window? Maybe I'll just pray in a different room, right? There would have been lots of temptations to compromise here for Daniel. But he felt that any of those actions would have been a compromise. He was in the spotlight and his faith in God was being tested, but he wasn't going to budge. He wasn't going to waver in his commitment to God, but he was ready to live with the consequences, even if that meant the end of his life. So why was Daniel so unafraid to stand out and speak up for God? This is your second blank. He remembered that God had been faithful in past tests. Remember, this was like 70 years into his adventures following God. He'd survived the trial of eating the kosher food as a teenager. He'd seen his his friends survive the fiery furnace. He saw God humbling arrogant Babylonian kings, not once but twice. This time was his chance to stand strong. And even though the political landscape had shifted and he was working his way up in the new empire, his convictions had not shifted an inch. So he also had a conversation with God three times a day. The text makes it clear this was not a new thing, but this was his decades-long habit. He carved out a time to pray three times every day. I find it interesting to see that he seems to have prayed facing Jerusalem not very differently than how Muslims pray five times a day facing Mecca. All right? Uh, So, you know, I have my morning devotion every day. I pray every time I get in the car, at least the first time in the morning, I pray the first time when I get in the car every day. And, you know, I'm part of a big network, so I get a lot of prayer requests regularly. So I pray pretty steadily, but I don't carve out 
times to pray every day, like aside from my morning time, the way that Daniel did. He gave sacrificial time slots um, to share his heart with God and to hear the voice of God. So I do it, but I don't do it the way that Daniel did. Maybe it's time for some of you to step up from your morning devotions to have an additional prayer cluster in your schedule. As Pastor Kim would say, just a thought. Think about it. Rick Warren puts it very succinctly, the key to standing strong is kneeling often. He's the master of simple yet profound phrasing. You might want to write that down. Uh, Pastor Rick has also had a big impact on me and on the LGM, and this quote is not the only thing I've borrowed for this message. All right, so uh, the trap was set as we go into verse 11. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house, and they found him praying and asking for help. So they went straight to the king, and they reminded him, about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? King's still not understanding what's going on, right? He's a little bit slow. Uh, Yes, the king replied. That decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be revoked. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so... That's when they knew they had Daniel, right? And so if this had, a, if Twitter had existed back then, I'm sure Twitter would have been buzzing, all right? So their scheme had worked to perfection. The king's ego had enabled them to spring a trap, and Daniel's stubborn, uncompromising faith led him right into that trap. They had found his weakness. His slavish devotion to Daniel's ancestral god would be his undoing. You guys are much more with it than the early service. More Twitter users here, clearly. All right. So... Verse 13, uh, the first one was like, what? Okay, anyway, uh, verse 13. So then, but what if they watch it on video and then I'm making fun of them? Oh no, all right. So they told the king, that man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, he's ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled. Not mad at Daniel, but mad at his own folly and his own foolishness for not understanding that he'd fallen, uh, he had walked into their, their plan to capture. So he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. This is actually a repeated theme throughout the book of Daniel. We see the ineptitude of pagan kings who seem so grandiose and pompous, but then repeatedly they're shown to be foolish and powerless and to compare very unfavorably with the the glory and the the might of the one true God. Um, So, And then in verse 15, In the evening the men went together to the king and said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no law the king signed can be changed. Verse 16, so at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. They said to him, may your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. It's interesting to me that we don't get a single verse of Daniel speaking up to this point. Um, you know, to help us understand his state of mind or what was he thinking. Uh, in fact, he doesn't talk until the very end of the chapter, a couple of verses. I guess his actions spoke louder than words. So a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. I'm just guessing it was the other two guys, right? Like there there were three of them and then the two of them probably were the ones who plotted against Daniel. So it was their seal put over the den and little did they know that would actually seal their own fate. Spoiler alert, sorry for that. All right, and so... um, So... 
verse 18, the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and could not sleep at all that night. So no belly dancers, no Netflix. He tossed and turned. He probably wondered how had he allowed himself to be manipulated like that and hoped, maybe he even prayed that his best leader, Daniel, would somehow survive the night. So the third reason why Daniel was so unafraid to speak out and stand up for God was because he knew that the rewards were greater than the risks. He wasn't afraid. Daniel learned how to defeat his fears. And I want to teach you a key to defeating a controlling fear in your life. Here it is. You minimize the potential problems or the potential negatives and you maximize the potential rewards in your life. When you focus and obsess on what if this happens or what if that happens, maybe this could go wrong, we get in an obsessive worry loop. What we need to do is to shift our focus, shift our pattern of thoughts to the benefits of doing the right thing, even if we're scared to do it. This will reduce our anxiety and we will uh, return to this idea shortly, how to have a victory over fear. Um, But Daniel really modeled this right thinking because he had an eternal perspective. He understood who had the ultimate power in the world. It wasn't the king. Uh, Even though he worked for the king, but he knew where the real power lied. Jesus helps us to understand this well in Matthew 10, 28. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus even took it a step further in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be glad for the reward, a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So Daniel is one of those ancient prophets that Jesus was talking about. Right, so we usually pray for God to keep us out of trouble. Maybe he'll resolve problems quickly and neatly for us. But the uncomfortable reality is that sometimes God lets you go into the pit because he wants to do an even greater miracle of keeping you out. Uh, he wants to protect you while, while you are in the pit, and then he wants to deliver you out after that. So this brings even greater glory to God. One of our LGM pastors has been in the pit more than once recently. Let me tell you his story. Uh, Let's call this guy Pastor Deepak, okay? It's a a bit of a sensitive situation, so we'll call him Pastor Deepak. He works in a fairly interior area. I think the technical term is jungly. uh, And the dominant religion there is a kind of animist nature worship. Uh, So they have a sacred tree and all that, okay? So there's a strong resistance to Christianity there because... The powerful spiritual leaders feel they're losing the grip on the common people. And I think it's also tied to votes and political power. So uh, Deepak doesn't look like it exactly, but he is a powerhouse, especially after joining the LGN when he learned how to make his church more balanced and he learned to empower other leaders to work alongside him. He's seen amazing growth. In the three and a half years he's been with the LGN, he's led more than 300 people to make a decision for Christ. All right. So yeah, it's awesome. So what's even cooler about his story is that for the first two years, uh, I never met him. He never saw my face. He didn't know who I was, but he was trained by the guys there in the middle. That is one of my trainers. Uh, you know, so the, so the fact that our trainers are reproducing such high impact leaders is one of the best things about the LGN. So after his initial two years, Deepak was selected as one of the top 4% of pastors who would then become uh, trainers with the LGN, and we are thrilled to have him as part of the team. But his explosive growth did not go unnoticed. Like in Daniel's life, rivals grew jealous of his success and the growing influence he had in their community. 
So the trouble started about a year and a half ago. In the first uh, two years after joining the LGN, he planted seven churches and he had led 200 people to Christ at this point. And the religious and political leaders were getting nervous about losing their influence. They were so worried, in fact, that 22 of them, they met together and they each contributed money to hire a contract killer to kill Deepak. Uh, before his ministry hit a tipping point and they completely lost their influence with the people. So they gathered their cash, which was a lot of money in their part of the world, and they paid the hitman 135,000 rupees. It's about $2,000, or you can think of it as two years of like uh, manual labor wages. Um, and they told them to get rid of Deepak any way you want. We don't want to know the details. We just want this guy gone. So this guy took the money, and he went to Deepak's house, One evening, he goes straight to the front door and knocks. And Deepak answers. And it turns out the gangster they hired was an old school friend of Deepak. They were kids together. He's like, hey, buddy, good to see you. You got a problem. All right. And so, uh, and so, you know, so he had no intention of of killing his friend, but was pretty happy to pocket the money, you know. Um, And so... So uh, a week, a month goes by. Of course, the Deepak's not dead, and his ministry's still growing and flourishing. So the guys, so the people, they call this uh, contract killer, and like, what's the deal? And he, he he turns against them and says, "Don't trouble me. Don't trouble Deepak, or I'm going to come get you next." So I asked Deepak, "Wow. So what's happening with this guy? Is he a believer?" He's like, "Well, he's interested in Jesus, but no, not yet." I'm like, no hurry. I mean, you know, it's 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 good to have friends like that sometimes. You know, like in Jesus's time, it'll be fine. But you know, uh, it's good to have. Some guys like that on your side. Uh, and so this is the, uh, this picture shows the next chapter in the story. That's Deepak there with his LGN uh, trainer shirt on the right. And uh, these people are actually relatives of one of the 22 leaders who had banded against him. Uh, that guy died. I'm not sure how, some illness. And so his relatives were thinking, you know, uh, uh, our guy's dying. Like, uh, he was the uncle or something like that. You know, he's dead. Deepak's alive. Maybe he's got more spiritual power than we do. Like, we should go to this church and check out what's going on. And so over the course of time, the whole family has come to the Lord. And uh, it's an awesome story how God used something terrible for good. The next time you clap, I'll take a drink at the right time. All right. So, yep, I'll share a little more because uh, there is another situation that Pastor Deepak is, is facing. But for now, let's return to Daniel's story. So, in verse 19, it's early the next morning. The king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lion's? So after tossing and turning and stressing all night, the fact that he sprang up first thing in the morning suggests that maybe the king had some inkling that Daniel might have been delivered. It wasn't illogical, but maybe he saw something in Daniel's face as he was lowered in the pit. He could see that Daniel was not afraid. How can you and I become more fearless like Daniel? Well, this is your last blank. You put your faith in God. Standing for God is a victory over fear. And if you can get a victory over fear, well, you'll be fearless. And you'll be able to do amazing things that other people will never be able to do because other people are in a prison of self-imposed fear. What is fear? I'm sure you've heard it before. False evidence appear, appearing real. It's not real. It's fearful. Fear is always worse than the reality. We imagine it worse than it really is. And then we make ourselves miserable. 
Fear is just an ephemeral feeling and it cannot last. Fear is just an emotion. And like every emotion, whether good or bad, it does not last. Happiness doesn't last forever. No, we all have these emotional ups and downs. Um, we have really strong feelings. Sometimes we feel this, you know, I'm always going to feel this strongly. And if you think, I'm always going to feel this way, but that's not true. No feeling lasts forever. If you're depressed, you might think to yourself, I will always be depressed, but you won't. You are taking a passing feeling and you're projecting it as a permanent lifestyle. You should never let your emotions control your decisions or control your commitments. So here are three benefits in overcoming your fear to stand for God. The first one is that it builds my faith and character. If you're not afraid, you cannot be courageous. It's funny to say that the first ingredient of courage is fear. Uh, first be afraid, then do it anyway. Okay. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the perseverance in the face of fear. Sometimes it's good to put yourself in a situation where you have to step out on a limb and trust God. Step out on that limb because that's where the fruit is. Do you think that maybe Pastor Deepak ever thought to himself, you know, I'm sure making a lot of enemies here. Maybe I should slow down. Maybe I should pull back before this gets out of hand. You know, I think he probably did have that thought once or twice. But he decided to continue to do the right thing before God and trust the consequences to God. The second one is that it gives us, it gives God an opportunity to do a miracle. So living in India, I hear testimonies of healings and miracles all the time, like once in two weeks, right? It's not even a question for, for me or for the church in India, does God do miracles today? The only question is which day of the week is he going to do the miracle, right? So if you've never taken a step of faith, never stepped out on the water, don't be surprised if you've never seen a miracle, if you've played it so safe your whole life that you've never needed a miracle. Amen. All right. So the third point is that it's a powerful example to unbelievers. We should pray like the early Christians did in Acts 4.29. Oh, Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. When the stakes are raised, is our instinct to pray for boldness and then to move ahead despite our fear? Or is our instinct to shrink back, right? The early Christians faced huge social pressure and their response was to lean into that and to pray for boldness. Let's listen to how Daniel was finally able to testify when they broke the seal and they removed the stone. Verse 21, Daniel answered, Long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. So he was innocent before God and innocent of treason against the king. Verse 23, the king was overjoyed, and he ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in God. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. And he had them thrown in the lion's den, along with their wives and children. The lions leapt at them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. You know, uh, sometimes we see like a kid's animation of this chapter and we think, you know, the, the lions were like purring next to Daniel and they were cuddly and friendly. No, these lions were frustrated the whole night long. Their snack is like looking back at them and they can't get to them. And finally... Food came in a different way. So, you know, it's hard to imagine a plan backfiring any more spectacularly than this scheme against Daniel. They planned everything with great cunning, but they failed to uh, calculate that the God who Daniel was praying to was actually the living, powerful God, and that mistake cost them their lives. All right, so in verse 25, King 
Darius sent his message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. And so I won't read the whole imperial proclamation. It's there on the screen. But not only did Darius testify to the greatness of the living God who Daniel served, but Daniel's courageous stand made a lasting impact for centuries. So in Matthew 2 verse 1, when, you know, this is the Christmas story, right? Uh, it tells us that wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Now, Costco seems to think that they were from Africa, based on, you know, the nativity scenes that they sell, but they were eastern lands. Africa's to the west of Jerusalem, right? So, and then like people in India, you know, they think, oh, these were, these were wise Indian sages who went there, but sorry, India, most probably these were actually, these were actually Persian wise men, uh, who had been reading the, the prophecies of Daniel and keeping track um, and so, you know, the, and of course, their gifts are what enabled uh, Jesus and his family to escape to Egypt and to survive Herod's killing and everything else. So um, it was all part of God's master plan. And that was the impact um, that Daniel had. It's amazing to think that 18 generations later, they were still reading Daniel's prophecy and watching for a Jewish Messiah that he had foreseen. The Bible doesn't explicitly say so, but it seems likely that Daniel was made a eunuch when he was taken captive into Nebuchadnezzar's court as a teen. So he probably never married or had children, but his legacy, despite that, was truly spectacular. Uh, Not only to write the most applicable book of the Old Testament, but being such an effective witness to his generation and many generations to come after him. So I want to encourage you older folks maybe more at the 9 o'clock service, but there's a couple in here as well, that, uh, you know, your best days of serving God may not be behind you, okay? This chapter in Daniel's life happened when he was 83 years old, and probably his greatest contribution to God's people happened a couple years after that, when he was 85, when he wrote chapter 9, which is the vision of 70 weeks that talks about, you know, um, when Jesus is going to come and put an end to sin, right? So, uh A few of us will have a huge platform like Daniel had. But God still expects a faithful witness from each of us. And he is calling us to rise above our fears, whatever they may be, to glorify him in our sphere of influence. I recently heard a great quote on a podcast from Bishop Robert Barron. Faith in the Bible is the willingness to risk, under the providence of God, some great adventure. My adventure takes place in India. Yours may not. Although you're welcome to visit, right? But, you know, I struggle to really think through uh, how I wanted to lead you guys in application because I think for each of us, uh, the application is going to be completely different. Uh, this is an area where everyone's response will, will differ. So what does courage look like in your life? You know, we saw it in Kyle Costin. We saw it in Daniel. We saw it in Deepak. What areas of fear have held you back from greater obedience to Jesus' calling in your work, at school, or in your relationships. Returning to Deepak for a a moment, he's not quite out of the woods yet. When I asked him how we as a life-giving network can help and support him more, he shared that perhaps the greatest part of his trial was still coming. When the contract killer didn't do the job, their opponents switched their tactic. They are trying to raise a court case against him now for forced conversion based on a new law that was brought in by a radical Hindu government in that part of India. So when I asked him, how can we stand with him? He said, well, for now it's fine. I mean, just pray for me. But if I get arrested, my wife and my two-year-old daughter might need some help. I told him, yeah, we'll totally help your wife and your daughter and help you as best we can. Um, and, you know, God saved him from the first pit, uh, but people are still scheming against him. So if you want to stay updated with Deepak and uh, what all is happening with the, 
the life-giving network. The, the main way that we send sensitive updates is through our closed Facebook group. So you have to search that on Facebook and then apply to join. And if you're from Linden, I will say yes. Come on in. Um, and uh, But for right now, uh, let's take a moment to pray for Deepak. Would you stand with me as we pray for him? Lord, we marvel at how you have used this brother in Christ so tremendously to bring lost people to Jesus and how you have orchestrated each step for him thus far. It's amazing how you have taught him how to love so many lost people to Christ and how you have overseen the selection of the right hitman who would not go through with the plans of his enemies and how you continue to bring lost people into your kingdom through Deepak. We ask you now for your wisdom and your protection for him, for his family, that no harm would come to them, that you would enable him to stay free. And if your will is for him to go into the pit for a time and not be free, Lord, uh, give him wisdom and courage and strength and help us to support him the best way we can as he goes through that trial as well. Lord, we ask you to intervene like you did in Daniel's life with his brother, even as he faces unjust charges for practicing his faith. Lord, we thank you that you've made this world so much smaller through air travel and the internet. We can hear stories of how you're using this brother in Christ for your glory. Give him a greater and greater testimony of your power and goodness and faithfulness. And Lord, help us also to be obedient, to be good witnesses of your goodness and your power and the spheres of influence that you've given us. Uh, We want to have this great courage to rise above our fears and to stand up and speak out for in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities. And I pray this with confidence because of and through Jesus.